Ciao. Ciao. Jalo Chow Chow Podcast has returned. What have I done to you? What do you want from me? We want you to listen. We want you to subscribe. And we want you to join our Facebook group. Do you know how to do those things? I don't know. I don't know anything. Well then, it seems we have no choice. <laughs> Ciao, everyone. Welcome to the Jalo Chow Chow podcast. <laughs> Is that supposed to be a direct uh, uh, reaction to what I was mentioning in the last podcast? Well, you, you said I, I, I used to be a lot more soothing to our... <laughs> our Jolly listeners. So I don't know if I'm we were ever soothing. Soothing. But... <laughs> soothing the soul. John. Yeah. John. 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 <laughs> John. Well, um, as much as I like soothing Matt, <laughs> um, can you hit us up with like an, a, an energy-filled chow-chow? Oh, yeah. I miss that. I miss it already. Chow-chow, everybody, and welcome to this next exciting episode of the Jello chow chow podcast, the only... No, it's not only anymore. One of the few shallow podcasts out there. Yeah. It's the only one with Matt and Chris. John. And John. I think I like this dude intro better after after all. Okay, well we, we could we could wing it. <laughs> well, um, Yes, welcome everyone to this exciting episode number seven of the volume two of the Chow Chow. And um, it seems like it wasn't too long ago that uh, we were in this same boat floating along in uh, the death occurred last night ocean. 
uh, or lake or river or whatever you want to call it. Um, Is that what the fucking movie was called from last time? A death occurred last night. Yes. I couldn't even remember. <laughs> it, it was it was that good. It was that good. And now we're back again with you. Um, and this time we're going to be talking about Mario Bava's elusive and often misunderstood and um, probably less often um, not liked uh, <laughs> movie called <laughs> A Hatchet for a Honey A Hatchet for the Honeymoon. Not a hatchet. It's just hatchet. There's no art. Yeah, it, it's, it's also not a cleaver for the honeymoon. No. Or sweaty honeymoon. It's not a cleaver for the honeymoon, except every time I wrote down what was going on in my notes, I wrote cleaver because that's what he was holding. Yeah. Um, and just a quick aside, because I thought of this not too long ago. The little round hole on the other side, on the dull side of the cleaver, is that yeah. simply for hanging it up? I think so. Okay. I don't I mean, know. It's not so like you can swing it faster because it's lighter. No, I I could have sworn that at some point in my life somebody told me that that little hole was to help tenderize meat. Like if you turned yeah. it over. And you bang the meat with that side of it with the hole in it. I don't know why I thought of that. Um, maybe it was a dream or something. You know how it is when you're a kid and you think you remember stuff a certain way and then you realize that it's completely not the way you remember it. You know what? It's probably you got confused because you're supposed to bang meat with holes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you just got confused. It, it was, yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh geez i don't think i want to go in that direction uh <laughs> so one of the things that's john. Funny, john I don't have very much to to talk about because um, despite the fact that we we recorded the last podcast a couple of weeks ago, I only published it um, yesterday. So the the whole idea that we were going to interact with the audience uh, on our Facebook page really doesn't it's, it's not relevant because they've only had one day to digest the fact that we did a podcast. So, um, yes. and if we were, if, if we were deciding that we were, <laughs> the funny part is like, imagine if we decided last podcast, Hey, let's put a, a question out on the Facebook group and we'll answer it on the next one. Well, they haven't even heard it yet. So, um, they would Come on, not guys they, get with it. They wouldn't even know there was a question, but, um, I did get one, uh, comment, uh, from Mikkel, um, who's been in our group for quite a while. And he writes, yeah. I have an extremely important question about the Jalo score, which of course means that, uh, it's an, it's, it's definitely an important question. Um, all questions about the Jalo score are important. Um, yeah. would the film secret of the Sphinx get points for having an animal in the title? 
because a sphinx is a mythical beast, part human, part lion. Does that count as an animal? I don't know, man. This is getting... We're, we're really we're really stretching rules here now. I really like the question because it um, it spurs conversation, right? Because yeah, what do you think, man? Um, an animal in the title. A yeah. sphinx is not an animal, but it is an animal. And mythical. I don't know. And, you know, I, the good news is that I'm not really managing the Jalo score that, um, that, that much anymore. So I can answer this and it really won't affect much of what I'm doing in my life. But, um, because if I was like balls to the wall doing the Jalo score, then, you know, I'd have to make some, you know, some, some changes to the criteria. Like, okay, if we give a film a point because it has an animal in the title, but the animal is a mythical imaginary creature. Are there any other rules for giving it a point? Like, okay, if the point puts it to the next level of 10, then it it doesn't count, but I, I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, well, here, here's what I'm, here's what I'm thinking. I think you have I a like it. idea. I like it. I think it should work. <clears throat> but that also means like the girl who knew too much. You'd have to give a point because um, or what, however many points, because technically humans are animals. Ooh. And humans are more real than sphinxes. Mm, see that that's a good point i would have to go back and retroactively any movie with a person in the title yeah the girl who knew too much the man i don't know <laughs> what what are what other, trying to think. <laughs> trying to think of another one i have to bring up the spreadsheet and see um, uh the jalo list here we go let me ask you this does Cat of Nine Tails get two points or two different points for having an animal or a number in the title? No, because seven deaths in a cat's eye wouldn't get three. You know what I'm saying? Um, but you know what? You only get one. Well, here, here's my thing, because seven deaths in the cat's eye, that is an actual number. And an actual animal. The cat of nine tails is neither an animal or nine things. It's just the whip. It's just the name of something, right? But also, you get a point for the word death in the title. So, not that that has anything to do with your argument, but... (laughs) Well, also, the ocean's blue. Right. So, so the sure. sweet bo- the sweet body of Deborah. Deborah oh, is an Deborah animal, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. So maybe not. <laughs> but now we have another problem because we have agreed on the fact that humans are animals. Yeah. So, regardless of talking about the sphinx 
you might have to go back and redo a bunch of shit. Yeah, but I'm not gonna. <laughs> <laughs> what about um? Let me see, wait. Hang on. Um. <laughs> I don't know. You could also say Jennifer's body. If the not Jennifer's body, but what are these strange drops of blood on Jennifer's body? Right. Or, yeah. Well, and then that's the other thing. Like, what if is the... anyone in Case of Bloody Iris called Iris? No, I think it was the flowers. Right. Yeah. Well, I was just being a dick. Okay, oh, go ahead. oh, okay. Oh, Miss Ward. Right, right. Yeah. Well, here's the here's the next question that follows since you brought up Case of the Bloody Iris. Um, oh, stripping for your killer. If what killer is an animal? Well, if it's a person. Yeah, that's how we're referring to yeah, this see, is now, a, we're, this, now we're getting in the weeds. Such a slippery slope here, dude. <laughs> I just end up giving a hundred points to every film. How about that? <laughs> oh no. Um, but here's another interesting question, though. Um, the the primary, I think, the primary title of case for case of the bloody iris in the U.S. was case of the bloody iris. But what are those strange drops on Jennifer's body? Is the English translation of the Italian title? And so then the question is, well, if you could give the the film a point for having the an animal, a color, or a number, or the word death in its title, but it wasn't. It was an AKA title. Do you still give it the points? Yeah, because I think there's a title of Eyeball that has the word cat in it. Correct. Yes, the Eyeball. Um, the Eyeball film was also known as the Labyrinth. Something about the like labyrinth. Secret labyrinth was one. Red a oh, red cats, or something like that in the labyrinth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this is it's it, we're getting man. Uh, well, thanks for the question, uh, Miguel. Yeah, you just you just blew Chris. Blew our minds. Mind. <laughs> <laughs> He's not going to be able to sleep tonight. Yeah, I mean everything that I that I thought I knew about life is just been thrown out the window, and I'm gonna have to reevaluate everything that I know now. Oh, so what about one on top of the other? Did you give it for perversion story? Which title did you use? I don't remember. A lot of times when I was trying to decide, um, uh, which title to use. I picked whatever the whatever was um if you go to IMDb um I usually go with whatever they have billed it as. Now for for perversion story it's in Italian it's called Una Sulatra which I think translates into one on top of the other although yeah. I could be wrong um, but I think it was released here under both titles, though, wasn't it? Like at different points, it might have been. Oh, and Solange, what have you done to Solange? Gets a point because Solange is the name of a person who could also be an animal. No, is an animal. <laughs> is <there> a person? 
Yeah, uh, Google Translate will give you the exact uh, translation of one on top of the other if you put in Una Sulatra. So I guess perversion story. Well, you know, and, and now I have to go back and, and catch myself because I'm pretty sure that I use the word pervert. I use perversion story as the title in the Jalo score, even though IMDb builds it as one on top of the other. So oh. there's so much inconsistency in the shit that I, that I put out there. Everybody, it's like, I don't know what the hell I was doing. Sometimes I just pick the title I like the most. So it's it's almost like Congress is running Jello score. <laughs> I'm due to be impeached any minute now <laughs> for crimes against uh, for crimes against the the criteria <laughs> for crimes against cinema. Ay ay ay. Well, um, at any rate, uh, that was a that was a good one, and. Yeah. Um, it, it's gotten me thinking along those lines. And um, I just realized now as we're talking that I did not do a, a Jalo score for this film ahead of time. So we'll have to go through it and see. If we we never pick. did this movie, did we? No, we never On covered this movie. Because nope, I not. remember when I watched it, whenever we did the next episode... I was just like, oh my gosh, this movie, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, just running my mouth about it. Right. But I don't think we ever actually did it. I don't think so either. And um, I have a lot of things to say about this movie. Um, even though tonight and yesterday and the day before was, was like the third and fourth time I've watched it in my life. And when I started watching it for the third time just a couple of days ago, I was reminded of why I didn't remember what it was about. Um, because it didn't really leave an impression on me. And now it finally will because I've gone... There's, there's one scene that totally leaves an impression on you. And I think for me, and we'll talk about it in a little bit, there's a reason why I always think of this movie when um, people say Bava or something like that. But right. um, the other thing is, is that um, after I saw Spasmo, um, whenever I think of this movie, I picture scenes of Spasmo for some reason. Huh. Always. Okay. And, um, all to the point where I forgot one of the biggest plot points of this movie. So watching it this time, I was like surprised. I was like, what? And I think it was because I was expecting that there's something that happens in this movie that kind of happens in Spasmo. Okay. And um, so as soon as we get like halfway through this movie, when I start thinking about it, then all I think about is the last half of Spasmo. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like I have merged these two movies together in my head. And so halfway through this movie, I was like, 
that it was like I was watching it for the first time. Like I remembered it as I was watching it, but I was like blown away. Okay. Like just shocked. So whatever. Well, that is, it's an interesting, that's a very interesting take. Um, it'll be, I'm, I'm anxious to hear what you think the, the memorable scene is. Don't ruin it for us now. Um, Because I want to, I want to build some suspense with our listeners here. Um, But I don't remember Spasmo that much either. Although I know that the themes were sort of the same. It was like you really weren't sure what was real and what wasn't kind of theme. Um, Which is another reason why I'm not a big fan of Hatchet for the Honeymoon. But we'll again, we'll get into that in a second. Wow. Um, Spoiler. But, um, yeah, I don't, I mean, other than, other than uh, what we were just, uh, other than what we were just talking about from the the Facebook group page, um, I don't have very much else to report and um, figured that at this point it would be a good idea for me to say, hey, Matt, do you have a top three that you want to do? And if you don't, I'll just edit this whole thing out. Oh, um, <laughs> did you do the last one? I did. I did the three Tarantino films. Oh my God, that's right. Okay. Yes. Yes, I do. There he is. He's got one. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you my three favorite books by Harry Whittington. Say say the author's name again. Suck on that, losers. (laughs) Say the author's name. Harry Whittington. He is a master plotter and a master fader. (laughs) <laughs> ah yes but the servant waits while the master baits that's good okay so um, Harry Whittington is one of those guys from the um, paperback original era of the like 50s and 60s who wrote um, cheap novels that were like hard boiled super edgy um, crime thriller or just like noir kind of thing. And um, I'm not going to spend a whole bunch of time on this. I just, I feel like it's my life mission to make sure that everyone is reading this guy's stuff. So um, number three would be You'll Die Next. And it's about this guy who is a total normal dude who gets a letter one day saying that um, I know it's you, I chased you across the country, I'm going to F you up. Um, You thought changing your wife's name would help you, and it doesn't. Then, like, there's a knock at the door, he opens the door, and this guy's like, oh, are you Henry Wilson? And he's like, yeah. And then he just beats the shit out of him. And he goes to work and finds out that 
his job fired him because he lied on his application saying that um, he was in prison in California. And he's like, but I've never even been to California. Well, we have proof that you were in prison in California. And it's just like this series of events that are just like destroying his life. And he doesn't understand why it's happening. It's it almost feels like a hard-boiled version of um, Kafka's The Trial, mm. which is really cool. Um, so that's You'll Die Next. Um, the next one would be um, A Ticket to Hell, which is this guy's driving across the country. Um, he's been up all night. He's, he goes to a motel in New Mexico and... Um, he is there for a reason, but we don't know what the reason is. And it's very stressful to him. But while he's there, he witnesses a man trying to kill his wife in another bungalow. Um, but doing it to where it looks like it was an accident. Um, and he doesn't want to get involved because he's got shit to take care of that we still don't know about. But against his better judgment he saves the girl and um, then madness and trouble ensues. Mm. So there's that. And then the best book ever um, is called A Night for Screaming. And this book is about a guy who is on the run from the law and he goes to like some big almost like plantation place and um, starts working in like a, just in the fields kind of thing, like handyman kind of shit to try to hide out. Um, and one day when he goes into town, he sees the um, cop that's been chasing him across the country that um, once he, he, he never loses a man kind of thing. And um, so he is like freaked out, goes back to the house, um, doing his thing there. And then because people start to find out a little bit more about him, they'll, they think, hey, I'm going to turn you in unless you do this horrible crime for me. Mm. And um, it's just they're like so intense. And as you're reading it, they're really short. But as you're reading it, like you have to constantly like remind yourself to breathe because mm. like you hold your breath because it's so like intense. Right. And um, they're just he, he wrote like 200 bucks. Wow. He's just like a, a legend, super legend. And not enough people know about him. So Harry Whittington. Go read well, all of his shit. Well, I'm I am now one of the new people who now knows of Harry Whittington because I've never heard of him either. Um, <laughs> and uh, I have a couple of questions uh, related to this topic. And the first one, I guess would be the obvious one, which is um, have any of Harry Whittington's books um, made their way into film adaptations? Um, I don't think so. But there is a part of me that thinks he might have written some movie tie-ins. Okay. Because um, a lot of the stuff he did, like he did a lot of house name stuff 
so like um like there's this uh series of adult westerns which is basically like a western that every like 50 pages has like a really graphic sex scene in it right and um there was a series called long arm that lasted like 300 books or some crap like that and they're all supposed to be written by this guy tabor evans and um I can't remember how many, but I know he did at least two of those. Um, he also wrote um, some plantation novels, like um, under someone else's name, probably like Lance Horner or something like that. But like those, like Mandingo books, right? You know, like stuff like that. Um, oh, and he—I think he wrote a Man from Uncle book. Um, he might have written like a Doctor Who book. This is just me speculating on sure properties that were making tons of books based on a property. But um, he did a lot of that stuff too, besides his own stuff. But like, I don't know why his stuff hasn't been made in the movies. I I don't get it. They're so cinematic and they're so fast paced. It's just action packed. Um, yeah, kind of like what? What is it, Zoe? What's that really good? Oh, Tintin, action packed like Tintin. That's a joke. Zoe thinks Tintin is action packed. Okay, I'm I'm so, lost. I don't know who Tintin is or what. You don't Tintin know who Tintin is either. No. Yeah, you gotta be from across the pond. Oh, okay. Uh, He's been to the moon. Is this He's the, a journalist the, detective? He oh, he okay. also was racist against Native Americans. He hangs out with like a drunk sea captain, and he has a little white dog. And the Thompson twins do concerts for him all the time. <laughs> now I can finally relate to something. Hold me now. See. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, if uh, if if Wikipedia is correct, and usually it is, um, they list about 17 different pseudonyms for this Whittington guy. Yeah, he's written so, into a lot of names. And it's just, you know, it it's interesting to me to think about this, like, for, he was prolific in writing these, these, these novels, um, and they were pulp novels. So, why was he kind of um, excluded from, let's say, maybe the 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 Crimmies? Because like the Crimmies are like Edgar Wallace. Um, I know maybe it's a different subject matter. Well, maybe, maybe it's Edgar a different. Edgar Wallace was um, like twenty or thirty years before him. Oh, okay. Like, he was the generation before. And I think, like, with the Krimis, um, Rialto Films actually bought the rights to everything Edgar Wallace ever did. I see. If I'm not mistaken, like, the Wallace estate was a partner in Rialto Films because of how popular his books were in Germany. Okay. So I'm pretty sure Rialto only made Edgar Wallace Crimmies. 
I, I could be wrong about that too, but like I want to say that's the deal with that. But I mean, it was just there was a slew of writers who were doing this at the time. Um, it's ridiculous the amount of people who have been. I mean, because when the pulps died and the paperback originals started, so that's like forty nine. Like everyone who was working in magazines was now working in paperbacks. So I see. Um, there was a lot to choose from. Let's say. Oh, okay. But, so now. The second question that I had for you on this list was you gave us your top three favorites of this author. And my question would be for somebody who hasn't read any of, of Harry Whittington's stuff, despite the fact that you gave us a top three of your favorites, would there be a different list for people who needed an intro into this author? And I'm including myself in that list because I, I I honestly don't think so. Like I've never heard someone read a Harry Whittington crime novel and be like, "This isn't very good." Right. Um, I haven't read a lot of the stuff he's written under pseudonyms for different things. Right. Like, uh, because there's just so much of his stuff that I haven't even got there yet. I see. So, um, but I have heard that his, um, I can't remember what plantation book he wrote. I think he wrote it under Ashley Carter, I think was the name he did. I could be wrong on that too. But I heard that book was actually really good for what it was, but I think you'd have to actually like that genre to want to read it. But just his like crime books, like, um, they're just like you don't have a chance to not like it. It just know? it grabs you right away. Yeah, like in You'll Die Next, um, the book starts with the doorbell ringing. Okay. You know, it's like there's there's no time to, and um, a ticket to hell. He picks up a hitchhiker, and the hitchhiker pulls a gun on him. Okay. So like, and that's like on the first page. So it's like, um, there, there's no time to go. Wow, this is a boring book. Like, you're <laughs> in, you know. You're in. Um, gotcha. Yeah, for sure. But um, a night for screaming, I think, is generally picked as like his best book. Okay. So. But You'll Die Next is a really, really quick read. A Ticket to Hell is really good. Those are just the last three that I've read. So, um, but like A Moment to Pray, um, Any Woman He Wanted, uh, Fires That Destroy, they're all good. Like, um, it's all good stuff. That's awesome. So now, yeah. the, the, the people that, the modern writers who are, you know, maybe, you know, when you see these, um, these nor and pulp fiction anthologies, 
that may come out uh, as modern story, right? St- you know, st- modern stories. Um, would you say that, like, you know how in the Jalo world we talk about how, you know, these neo Jali come out and really uh, more than anything, they're just like an homage. They're trying to pay tribute and recreate the uh, the look and feel of the Jali, but really. Uh-huh. You know, they're trying too hard to do that, and it kind of misses the point. Um, does that happen now in in fiction with these kinds of nor and pulp? I, I think so, because um, the sensibilities are completely different now. Like, there are things you can't say, things you can't do, because, like, the Twitter mobs will cancel you. Like, right. You can't have a character that's a chauvinist pig because then that means you, the author, are a chauvinist pig. You can't have <laughs> a character that's a racist because then you yourself are a racist. Right. You know what I'm saying? So, like, a lot of these, um, especially with um, noir, it's like these characters are depressed, depraved. Um, they don't give a shit if they live or die they're really just dark characters who sometimes they're dark characters with a heart of gold. And sometimes they're just evil motherfuckers that don't give a shit. Right. And I don't think that, um, there's anyone out there right now who's writing that, um, can do that with a straight face or do that without feeling societal pressures not to do that and then another thing too like all these guys all these paperback original guys when you read their biographies almost every single one of them was in world war ii okay um or korea and then by the time the 80s rolled around a lot of the um pulpier authors were in vietnam you know, and I'm not saying you have to be in a war to be able to write real gritty shit, but right. I mean, World War II in the trenches compared to Desert Storm, which lasted a cup of coffee. Right. You know, like it, it's like a completely different set of rules and like a lot of these guys like either they grew up in the depression or their parents grew up in the depression right Uh, you know it's like a lot of these people had hard times and can write hard times in a realistic way i guess is the best way to describe it i just i feel like the, the sensibilities of today are too constrained i mean i i think it's strange that stephen king's old books are still in print with as much as he throws certain words around that you're not supposed to say (laughs) well you know i think there's like i think there's a certain like level um that you can uh uh, rise to as as a famous writer or you know uh content creator where you get uh excused um because of how popular you are but he couldn't do that now no but i mean like even like you know if tarantino makes a film and you know it it's riddled with (laughs) n-words they give him a pass 
because no, see, haven't you seen that interview? He gets a pass because his mom dated a black guy. Oh, is that why? <laughs> yeah, and and this this black guy that his mom dated dated used to take him to the movies to see these movies. So right. that's why it's okay because like he knew a black guy once. I'm being <laughs> ridiculous right now, but that he actually said this in an interview. And well, I yeah, just like, yeah, you gotta be fucking kidding me. Well, that's that's the same reason why for years Howard Stern was able to do what he could do because he had a black woman in the studio with him and it was it was all legitimized, you know. Um, I've been thinking about this a lot. Like my son now is 12 and he's kind of at the age where he, I can let him watch family guy and he doesn't get all the jokes. Cause some of them are really kind of raunchy, but they're like subtle and raunchy. So yeah. if you understand the reference to how dirty the re- the joke is, then you realize that it's a very dirty joke. But if you don't get it cause you're only 12, then it just kind of flies over your head. But my point is this generation, his generation, they have so many things that they need to reference. Like when, when you watch, uh, when, when you watch a family guy episode, there's a lot of references to things that happened in the seventies and eighties. And if you grew up in the seventies and eighties, the references are just right there because you're like, Oh yeah, I remember that. But if you're, Somebody who was born, you know, my son was born in 2008. So um, if you're born in 2008 and now you're watching Family Guy, I have to, like, explain why certain things are funny to him. And he gets it. Like, he understands that it's funny. Like, like, you know, because they in that show, they're they're always doing cutaways. Right. So they'll do a cutaway. And it's like, you know, and he'll turn to me and go, this is probably from some movie. Right, Dad? And I'm like, yeah, this is from 16 Candles or. Uh, you know, this is from a um. Mob from... was a TV show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or uh, besides Mod, there was another TV show where all the characters were sitting on a couch and they would freeze frame, and then and then somebody yeah. would then was I it was soap? Just thinking about that, I think it was soap. And um, they would just stand there. And they would stand there, and there would and there would yeah. be a voiceover talking about what was going to happen next. Like they would do that kind of stuff. And I, I don't know if I feel bad for this generation because, like, they have so much that they have to, like, look up in order to understand yeah. what they're looking but at. But they can. I mean, yeah. think of yeah. how hard it was for us to look stuff up. <laughs> I mean, true. how long did it take you to get four flies? Oh, my I God. Mean, <laughs> seriously, you know, like. Uh, uh, dude, four flies. That was, like, my, my quest for the fucking Holy Grail, dude. It was. It was insane. And that's why you like it because you have to because it took you so long. It took me so long. That's the only reason why I like it. You're right. <laughs> right. Um, I think you said that last podcast about lizard and a woman's skin because that was the, it was one of the same situations. Yeah. But four flies, man. That was one where I was just um, not not to we're we're going off topic here, but I was going through my vinyl again. Uh, about a week ago and I was looking up all the misfits records that I used to own that I sold ages ago and how much they're worth mm-hmm. now. 
And um, yeah, you were telling me about this. It's ridiculous. I was, dude. I was really kind of pissed when I realized like how much some of the stuff is worth. Um, yeah. But uh, I'm trying to think of where the hell I was going with that. What were we talking about? Right? Oh, four flies. So um, I do remember, and I need to go back over because I think my, you know, a lot of my stuff from my old life is still in my mom's basement. I was in a laser. I went through a laser disc period in my life. Um, and it was really after DVDs came out. It, was, I, it wasn't like I was into laser discs when they were current. Available. Yeah. It was like completely when they became like, like vinyl is now, you know, yeah. um, well, although, although vinyls made a comeback, but you know, like, I guess like cassettes, you know, cassettes are kind of like the, that lost, uh, that lost art kind of thing. But, um, I remember getting a copy of Cat of Nine Tales on Laserdisc, uh, and it was the Japanese version. And I was so excited because it looked almost as good as a DVD looked, and it was in the proper aspect ratio. And you had those little, um, I guess it was Japanese. You had the Japanese uh, subtitles on the bottom of the screen, but it wasn't that big of a deal. Um, and even even as hard as it was to find that I did find that, but four flies, you, you couldn't even find that because they never released it. It was like yeah. something that was out in theaters and I don't think it ever came to home video. And if it did, it, you know, it just had such a limited run in a couple of countries. And the only way you could Here's get it. It's a ridiculous question. Did that comedy Argento made after four flies ever get like a re-release or anything like that? Um, I do remember seeing or seeing a copy of it. I'm not sure whether I actually got a copy of it. I may have gone to a horror movie convention, like a Fangoria weekend of horrors thing. And there was somebody there who might've been selling it on VHS, but it didn't have subtitles and it wasn't in English. So, um, I didn't really get much out of it. I don't know if I even watched it. Um, but yeah, that's a movie that no one talks about. Five Days in Milan. Yeah. That's it. Speaking of Milan, um, the Disney I, movie? I want to know that's Mulan. So last podcast we covered a death occurred last night, and there was a question that you had asked, which was, I wonder if the person who wrote the screenplay for this also wrote the screenplay for Black Belly of the Tarantula. Which and the answer is no. Um but I did look up a little bit about this guy. His name was Giorgio Scarabenko. He wrote a novel called E. Milanese Amanzado al Sabado, which translates as Milanese Kill on Saturdays. And it's a 1969 crime novel, which in, in which they base the, the whole movie on. But the actual name of the fucking book is People from Milan Kill on Saturdays, which was like the whole idea of the book about it's my day off or, or the, the, the film. It's my day off. Um, so like, like how 
interesting is that that they took that book um it's a crime novel and it, it revolves around the disappearance of a beautiful daughter of a truck driver which leads the investigator to the slums and brothels of milan it was the final installment in scarabanco's milan quartet about the medical doctor and investigator duca lamberti so lamberti is the character in death occurred last night he's the guy with the pubic curly pubic hair yeah that you called like most people and his character lamberti was actually featured in a four book installment by this guy um the milan quartet and he's like the main investigator in this crime novel um quadrilogy if you want to call it that so and what are the other books called uh did I, not go that far into... I didn't go that what, what's far the guy's or... name scarabaldi it's his name is uh scarabanengo i'm gonna spell it because i'm terrible at pronouncing this it's s-c-e-r-b-a-n-e-n-c-o giorgio is the first name so he wrote the script based on the book that he wrote or someone else wrote the no the script was adapted from the book he was the only thing that he did was he wrote the novel oh, okay okay the guy who who directed the film duccio tassari and one other guy they wrote the screenplay based on that book so but i thought that was pretty fucking interesting yeah the, the name of the book is actually about how saturday is the day when they kill people so investigative work man thank you that's that's kind of our job yeah it's, did it. <laughs> it's kind of our job and i feel bad because um sometimes i come to the podcast without a lot of um info like i used to be able to do and then the next thing i know i'm editing the podcast after we record it and i'm thinking of more shit as, 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 yeah. after the fact and yeah, so always happens. So like if you're listening to this, make sure you listen to the next episode because we'll probably have more information on Hatchet for a Honeymoon. Matt Wall with the ultimate segue into our next section. <laughs> it's time to talk about our feature film. Hatchet for the Honeymoon is up next on the Jallo chow chow podcast and we are going to bring it to you live right after this break And we're back. 
All right. So, Mario Bava's Hatchet for the Honeymoon, released in 1970. Um, and we're continuing our, I guess, our survey is the, probably the right word of Jalo films from the year 1970. Um, yeah. We've covered a lot of them so far. As far as the chron- chronology of Mario Bava's Jolly, um, we know that his first um, attempt at the genre was The Girl Who Knew Too Much, and then a year later, Blood and Black Lace. And was this the next thing that he put out, or was it um, Five Dolls? I think it was Five Dolls. And then yeah. Bay of Blood, right. Yeah, okay. Because the woman who plays um, Mildred in this movie was in she's Bay of Blood. She's in Deep Blood. Red, right? No, she's, oh, in, but no. she's in Bay she's of Blood. In, yeah, she's in Bay of Blood. That's right. She's like the weird psychic tarot card reading lady. She looks yeah. totally different. I um, thought she was the mom in Deep Red. The, uh, the, the Marta character? No, I don't think so. Yeah. No, I was probably thinking of the Bay of Blood. Yeah, okay. So let me see. I'm just looking at. Uh, I'm just looking at IMDb here for a second uh, for the director credits for Baba. Um, uh, yeah, five. According to this, um, five dolls came out before Hatchet for the Honeymoon. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that Hatchet for the Honeymoon was actually was filmed prior to Five Dolls, but it, it's kind of like a Let It Be versus Abbey Road kind of thing. They they did all this work for uh, Hatchet for the Honeymoon, but then they they had some production issues which held up the film, and then it finally got released. So yeah, um, but I think before that happened, they put out um, Five Dolls. So. So this is a movie directed by Mario Bava, um, written by a Spanish writer named Santiago Moncada, um, starring Stephen Forsyth, Stephen Forsyth as John Harrington. And you cannot get a more waspy name than John Harrington. Um, and our good buddy, Dagmar Lassander, who was in... Um, uh, Iguana with a Tongue of Fire, and also played the lead role in um, Forbidden Photos of a Lady Above Suspicion. Um, and in addition to that, we have uh, Laura Betty. That is the, the lady that I was referring to, was also in, in Bay of Blood. She plays Mildred. That's John Harrington's wife. Um, and then we have a couple other characters. Um, Inspector Russell, uh, Alice... Uh, who is the brunette who gets killed, I think, um, the second death in the film. And um, there's a couple of other people, but it's a very, it's a small cast. It's a small list of characters. And um, we can talk a little bit more about some of the production stuff that I read on Wikipedia, uh, maybe later. Um, But let's get into the film itself. Um, I did, um, kind of jot down some scene by scenes and, um, the film, uh, do you, you before we go about that weird cocaine 
um, opening, like the tours. Yeah, I mean, do you have any? Is that um, what that's supposed to be? I don't think so. I don't. It looks like a bunch of powder, and then it gets chopped up into lines, and then it'll like spread out, and then you see their face, and then it gets chopped up into lines, and then it like spreads out. Am I just like thinking too much about it? You might be thinking too much about it because I didn't get a cocaine reference out of it simply because it looks like there's way too much powder for it to be cocaine. Um, But also, I think maybe it was just one of those things where, um, you know, it's an interesting point because these Jolly that we've been watching, a lot of their opening credits um serve some sort of purpose like to set the tone or establish a couple of important pieces of information like right off the bat but then you also have these films where the the opening credit sequence was really like an art piece almost like a, an overture at the beginning of a of a of an opera or something um and i think the guy who did all the hitchcock ones i forget what his name is um kind of made that yeah yeah he kind of made that that whole thing famous you know like the north by northwest opening and um vertigo Vertigo and psycho yeah so i think that's kind of what baba was trying to do here but um yeah the opening credits are kind of psychedelic i mean the film itself has got a very kind of trippy vibe to it um i did want (laughs) to i did want to mention two quick things on the intro credits at least the version i watched uh they mentioned the scream play uh and it's not a pun uh because they didn't spell it s-c-r-e-a-m for screenplay uh it's just a misspelling it's s-c-r-e-e-m play p-l-a-y instead of screenplay um which i found interesting and then right after that they um amongst all of the other credits in the opening credits, we have the continuity girl uh, listed. Patricia Zulini is the continuity girl. Um, now I didn't pay that close attention to see whether there were continuity errors with the film, but um, if there are, I guess the continuity girl really didn't do a good job. I didn't really notice any, but I wasn't looking that hard. So um, I think, Typically, they call that script supervisor. Okay, um, that's so. All right. If it's something like, like, did it actually say continuity girl? Yes. Oh my god. The, the version I'm looking at, anyway. That's funny. Now, one other thing to point out about um, the credits um, is that it was filmed in Barcelona and rome and madrid no i'm sorry the sound sound was done the sound studios were done in madrid and rome um barcelona and paris and the information that i read on wikipedia was that um bava's son lamberto did the he directed the outside scenes in in paris or in france um so to his, you know, do you know? Well, honestly, the only one that I noticed 
was towards the end when the cops are driving to uh, apprehend the killer, and they and you can see the Eiffel Tower in the distance. Oh. And it's like a night. It, it looks like a day for night kind of thing. Okay. And the the you, you could tell the film stock is completely different. Um, supposedly uh, Lamberto was the guy who uh, directed all those scenes, but we can get into that uh, later. Uh, okay. Anyway, okay. so um, the credits roll, and then um, we're in this train corridor um, where we're introduced to uh, John Harrington. He's trying to sneak into a cabin uh, in the train corridor, and there's this little boy who's looking at him. And um, we see the very first flashback. It is, this film has a lot of flashbacks in it, and it's like <clears throat> it's it's this device that they use in a lot of Jolly uh, Argento kind of really ran with this idea um, that there's some sort of revelation that's going to come towards the end and these flashbacks are like puzzle pieces and you get a little bit more each time uh you see it um and so that's been established right at the beginning you don't really notice it or know that that's what it is at the beginning but um later on you realize that that's what it is so um yeah because like when, when you first see it you just think there's some kid watching them right well not only I that think- there's there, there's a yeah. shot of, of somebody walking upstairs and it's kind of got this weird kind of um, this weird effect on the camera lens. And uh, and that's part of the flashback also. But this this little kid who ends up being, you know, the, the, the child version of, of John Harrington um, is is standing in this train corridor. So um, and. And, and right away, I, I, I got to hold my tongue until we get to the point where I'm allowed to complain about this movie. Because right at this particular point uh, in the beginning, um, you don't really know. You don't know if this kid is a real kid or if, if it's, you know, if it's supposed to be some sort of hallucination or a memory. Exactly. Um, but, yeah. but, they, but they do show a clip of, you know, the weird staircase um, with the stairs. And I think it's uh, eventually, um, in this scene, uh, John Harrington goes into the cabin, um, and there's a couple in there and he kills them, um, on the train. And whenever he kills somebody, as you'll see throughout the movie, there's this flashback scene where we hear somebody say, John, John and it happens every time he he swings his hatchet which isn't really a hatchet so um, but this is the first murder um, he walks into this uh, cabin two people I guess are in some sort of sexual embrace or whatever and he kill I guess he kills them both because um, this is like a See, husband and wife thing my my brain's reeling right now. What I think happened is I think Lamberto was making a movie in Paris that never got finished that also <laughs> starred this guy. Because, like, the train stuff, I could see that happening in Europe. 
but on top of that, he kills a guy, and he never kills another guy in the whole movie. That's, like, completely against his M.O., you know what right. I'm saying? Right, Although, yeah, it is the way they sell it. I don't know. But you're, so, but you're, you're grasping at, at straws here, because the, the, the real answer is that Lamberto was was brought in because there was a budget issue and they still needed to film exterior shots. And so they used him to do it. Um, and so it's only the exterior shots that Lamberto did. And, and so, you know, he might've gotten an idea from this, but I don't think that I, I like your idea, but it's, it's just probably a little grasping. Yeah. A grasping. <laughs> but this transitions into a really good bit. And one of the things that this movie excels at is its transitions. Oh my god, fantastic! Yeah. Um, I was just watching one. I, I have the movie running as as we speak, and the train switches to a toy train, yeah. um, and that's the first of many really well done transitions in this movie. Um, which brings us to the next scene where John Harrington is shaving and we hear his voiceover and he basically says, Hey, guess what? Uh, I'm a psychopath. Um, at first I was a little annoyed by the fact that I was crazy and now I like it or I'm amused by it or whatever he says. Um, and this but, is the new Phil Collins album. <laughs> Genesis and, uh, Huey Lewis in the news but we see him you know in this situation where he's kind of contemplating his own madness which i'm not sure you can do in real life yeah i think if you're crazy you don't know you're crazy when yeah and and, start talking about it like oh shit i might be crazy that means you're sane because you know the difference between doing something good or bad Right, exactly. Um, so there's this weird scene where he gets a fly out of his water and then he feeds it to the parrot and then he goes out um, to have lunch with Mildred and Mildred is his wife and she is basically the nightmare wife that no guy wants to be married to. Um, she is unappealing in every possible way. <laughs> and yeah, she's older, she's loud, she's rude. He yep. married her for her money. And right. Not because he liked her. And, um, and she's yeah. like, there's no way you're ever going to get away from me. Um, but meanwhile, uh, John is also running this fashion house exclusively for um, wedding and bridal uh, clothing. And um, there's, there's a reference in the very big, in the first few scenes where he's doing his voiceover and he's trying to establish who he is. He establishes this idea of he's trying to find out the truth. Um, this is later referenced as one more piece of the puzzle. Um, 
There's something that he's trying to figure out. And this is why this makes this film is very difficult to score for the Giallo score because <clears throat> he is the killer. He's not, he doesn't have a hidden identity. And yet there's still a mystery that needs to be solved. And he's trying to solve it on his own. So he's the killer and the amateur detective at the same time. Um, wow. But the amateur detective in this particular case really isn't a detective because he's not trying to catch the killer because he is the killer. Um, well, the other thing is, is that he talks about this missing piece and there's a lot of flashbacks, but he never brings it up again until the fucking very end of the movie. Right. Right. And and maybe it's because I saw the movie before I watched it this week. Um, and, and that's, and that's kind of, um, skewing my, my, my view on this thing, but I knew, I I thought it was pretty obvious that he killed his mother, you know, which is what we find out at the end, right? That he, that he was the one who killed his mother. Like, I don't think that we really, that he ever really established, Hey, I'm doing this because my mother was killed and there was this tragedy that has turned me insane. And now I have to kill women um, in bridal gowns, but I don't know why. And I'm trying to figure this out. Well, the Um, other thing is too, is that he never says why he killed his mom. Like we can guess they, they show a bit that makes you think of a reason, but like they never tell you why. Right, right. You're supposed to infer that he was jealous, I guess. Yeah. Uh, about about the the man who was in that scene, but that's at the yeah. end. So, yeah. um, there was one thing I wanted to point out um, that I thought was interesting. So, at about the nine minute mark, nine minute and nine minute and ten seconds, we get a close up of Mildred, and the camera pans down to to reveal that she's holding a book and the book says mediums and spiritism by dr kellaway um and i wanted to bring this up simply because i know we talked a couple of podcasts ago about the idea that um when they're making these films for an international audience and there's something that's written down in a particular language they have to make a you know more than one cut of the film with the various versions of the written word in the different languages. So like if the killer sends, um, you know, a ransom note to somebody or a threatening note to somebody and they show it up close on the screen uh, on certain movies, you'll see uh, the English language version. And in, in a, in an Italian language version, you'll see another that they actually filmed more than one version of the note. Um, in lower budget films or in films where they just didn't give a crap, um, they'll just put up, uh, subtitles or something. But in this particular case, I thought it was interesting because the camera, it wasn't an edit. It was a continuous shot from this woman's face, Mildred down her down to, to show you the book. So I'm wondering if they had to do that shot with the pan as many times as they needed to for the different versions of the book or did they just not um film it in any other language for that book maybe you know they just filmed it with an english language version of the book but i don't know 
I don't know if anyone listening has a copy of this movie from a different region. Um, let us know if the book is in a different language. Yes, do that. What, what do you think? What's your what, what do you think? Maybe. Um, my what? guess is that they just had the one because it wasn't a cutaway. Um, because I mean the scenes kind of involved in the books like on the table that whole scene right yeah and we see the book a couple of uh, uh, some additional times um, after after Mildred is killed oh you know what uh, uh, so I'm looking at what looks like I, I think I found the version of the film that you watched on YouTube was it in 4.3 yeah, I was super pissed. Uh, that's a shame. Yeah, you got to go back and watch. I, I already was like into it, and I'm like, uh, I'll just yeah, finish it. I just, yep, I just jumped to that same scene, and it's the same thing. So, um, at any rate, um, so we go to uh, uh, Mil- Mildred says she's going to a seance. And she wants uh, John to go with her. Which is hysterical because she's like berating him and telling him off and saying all this shit about him. And then she's like, and I'm going to a seance and I want you to come with me. (laughs) It's like, why the fuck would you want him with you if you (laughs) think he's such a piece of shit? Right. Precisely. But it's important. Apparently. It's important because yeah, and and it's one of the one of the other incredible transitions in the film. Yeah, it trips me out every time. This, <laughs> I, I honestly rewound this transition like a couple different times. Yeah, I have it written in my notes. Transition. So he goes to the fashion house. He meets um, Helen. He also meets Alice. But Alice is the woman that he sees through the binoculars earlier, the one that has the um, the, br- the brunette. Um, and uh, and it, but Helen introduces herself. She sneaks into his office and she's sitting in the uh, in his chair. She's very forward. Uh, she's very aggressive. She wants a job as a model. Um, he's in, he's immediately smitten with her. Um, she's Easiest not like you ever. Yeah. I mean, he, he and he picked out all her measurements except for like one. Her waist was off or something like that. Like it was, it was crazy. So yeah. after he talks, to, he says, "Okay, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna offer you a job." Blah blah blah. Oh, um, let's go back for a second. I love what Bava did. Where are you going to talk about the binoculars? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so good. The binocular thing was fantastic. He's yeah. looking through it the other way, and it's like. Not only is it just a cool camera trick, but it's him saying, I want to see you less than I see you now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> then, then she fucked it up because she's like, put that down. And then she's looking off camera. Yeah. Like, if he was, if we're looking through his point of view, she should have been looking down the barrel. And like, so I was like a little peeved about that. But this is just like one of those things. Like this movie, um, kind of Five Dolls and definitely Bay of Blood. You can see all of the things he's trying as far as 
um because i mean one of the things in this movie there's so much handheld camera yeah in this movie that it's almost off-putting but the whole time like you can tell he's just doing it to see what he can do right and that's one of the things that um endears him to me yeah that he was just trying so many things yep but yeah it's just it's great. Well, it, dude, it's it's unmistakable. When you watch this film, you don't need more than 10 seconds to know it's a Mario Bava film. I mean, yeah. I mean, unless you're unless you've never seen one before. I mean, um and we could talk about that more as we get to those scenes, but like, you know, the idea that he was doing these handheld things and he was doing these interesting camera tricks with these different points of view and stuff, that's all amazingly cool. But yeah. in addition to that, like the amount of detail that goes into the scenes and the way that he frames stuff when it's a wider shot or whether it's a it's a shot that's tracking from left to right, like the next scene where at the fashion house and, you know, you've got the models, the mannequins in the foreground and you've got um, in this. There's a couple of scenes in the in the fashion house where it. It reminds you of of Blood and Black Lace, obviously. I was just gonna say that, yeah. And it doesn't have the same color palette as Blood and Black Lace does. No. But it's got that same vibe where it's when you watch a Bava film, it's almost like you're watching it in 3D, even though you're not, you don't have 3D glasses on. Um, and I don't know how he achieved that. There, there are scenes where, um, the John Harrington character is in the the greenhouse or the hothouse. Um, and like, I don't know if Bava used some sort of fisheye lens or something, but man, it's like, I don't know how he fit all that detail into the frame. Um, it's like a wide shot, but it looks like it's more than wide. It's like, well, he, what he does that most people don't do is that he's always putting stuff in the foreground, always right to, like he makes sure that there's something in the foreground, the person we're supposed to be looking at, and then something in the background. So there's these just different depths of the shot. And a lot of directors will just do actor and background and they don't do foreground. But like he did all of this, like again in uh, Bay of Blood. Like, ridiculously. Like, it's just, it's one of the things he, and I don't want to say he's, like, a master of it, but, like, it's to the point where, and I think it was in um, Five Dolls, where they were, the, the place was too open, and so he's like, okay, I need someone to hold this branch up in front of the camera and don't fucking move. <laughs> so he was constantly like having like assistants run around with tree branches right right like just in front of the camera because there wasn't enough stuff to put in the foreground so yeah. it's just he's just a genius like yeah i don't know I yeah, like and, him. and and i guess in this film like his other films he's listed as the the director of photography which basically means that he's behind the camera all the time. Is that yeah. what that means? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, dude, it's crazy. And like, there's, 
there's a lot of scenes in Bay of Blood and there's a few in this one too where he does this thing where he he focuses in on something in the foreground and then blurs it and then the blur turns into a transition into the next scene or maybe the blur turns into okay I I want to show you what's in the background but I'm looking I'm showing you the foreground so let me blur the foreground which will and then I, w- I will say that he almost does it too much in this movie. Well, he does it too much in Bay of Blood for sure. Yeah, but there's times when I'm just like yes, you have a really long lens. You can get all the way over there. Like good job. <laughs> and then he'll just keep going. Yeah, like, yeah. There's a scene where the wife is on the steps and the camera's in the bedroom and he like shoots all the way to her. And then past her. And yeah. then she just like goes blurry and then the next scene happens or whatever. But I, and it's, it's, it's cool. Like, don't yeah. Get me wrong. yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's almost like he, maybe he did it a little bit too much, but it doesn't really matter. We don't care that much. So he's trying, he's, yeah. he's trying to see what he, he's almost like, uh, and it's funny that there's that whole room full of kids toys. Cause Whenever I watch a Bava movie, I almost feel like he just got a new camera or <laughs> he got some new lenses and he just wants to play with his new toy. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> everything that this toy could do, he's going to fucking do and he's going to make it seem to fit into the movie. Yeah. Yeah, but but he's but he's improv- improvising a lot. And yeah, and and really uh, with great effect, like, you know, he's, you know, it's it's not like uh, it's not just him being indulgent. Like it's it's uh, it really has a great, you know, it really works a lot of times. Mm -hmm. But this one scene where um, and we just we already mentioned it once already, but he goes into this locked room where he keeps all of his mannequins and he has this weird kind of sort of hang up relationship you know with these with these mannequins and then baba does this thing where uh after he goes and finds the the cleaver that's in the dresser uh as you would keep a cleaver in the dresser um you know he turns and baba just does this thing where the camera goes from right to left across these mannequin faces and you know each one comes into the frame and goes out of the frame and then we see harrington and then all of a sudden you realize that he's wearing different clothes and then there's real people that come into the frame and now we're at the seance and it's just like yeah that was so cool man. so good (laughs) so they go to the seance and i don't know you know why but Mildred is humming this lullaby and then she starts calling John. And I don't know if we're supposed to understand that there was somebody else in her life that was also named John or if she's calling out John's name. No, she has the, his mom's spirit in her. Is how I saw it. Is that why I thought she she went to, she went to get her first husband. 
or something, right? Like she was going to talk to her first husband. Is that what she said? Right. Yes. And then, but when she starts doing the lullaby stuff and doing the John thing that the mom did. She's I, channeling uh, John's mother. Yeah. And that's oh. why he's like, stop. And then it, we're somewhere else. Yeah, dude. I mean, I don't know if it's me or if it's just Baba's way of telling a story just is, you know, it's, it's not as handholdy as I would like, but I didn't get that. I didn't get that at all. <laughs> I didn't get it until after. Yeah. Like I, I didn't go, Oh yeah, that's what that means. Like it was like towards the end of the movie. I'm like, Oh shit. That happened. See, when I got to the end of the movie, I didn't even remember this seance scene. I, yeah. And, and part of the problem was because I fell asleep a couple times watching it. So I had to like, <laughs> I didn't start it over. I started from where I, where I think I fell asleep. So that was part of the problem. Um, I don't know if this happens to you, but sometimes you'll watch a movie and you're just, it's not the movie's fault. You're just tired and you never yeah. actually like the movie because you never had a good first experience with it. Cause you always fell asleep watching it. But yeah. Um, so we go to the greenhouse or the hothouse and the inspector shows up and this inspector is awful. I can't stand him. Um, he has one of the, um, one of the most widely used male English voices in all of dubbed Italy. Uh, It's used all the time. Um, which doesn't make it better, but the dialogue that they wrote for him is pretty bad too. So, um, but the thing I don't get is he tells us basically that numerous women have died under his employ. Right. And, but, you know, like in, like, uh, Blood and Black Lace, like everyone's a suspect and they talk to everyone. Yes. This cop is just focused on him. There's never any reason given as to why that is. There's, and the cop seems like the most inadequate twat on the planet. Yeah. Like, he does not seem like he knows what the fuck he's doing. And it's even funnier because later in the movie, he's like, you know what my plan is? Nothing. (laughs) To be patient. I'm just gonna gonna fucking hang out because I don't know how to do my fucking job. verbatim yeah that was verbatim wasn't it uh yeah but apparently he's been coming and talking to john several times about this these weird strange disappearances and john's just like yeah whatever man Uh, you know uh the only thing i burn in here is leaves so um so at this point and it's it's kind of important to reinforce this um as as you know, if they film this a different way, like let's say they film the train scene in the beginning where we didn't see John Harrington, uh, his face, it was just an un, you know, an unmasked or uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, an, an unidentified killer. Yeah. Um, and then we move to the rest of these scenes. It would be, it would be a different vibe altogether, but because we know that this guy is a killer, um, you kind of forget that he, you know, we've only seen one murder so far. And they talk, you know, the inspector is looking in this, in, in his little incinerator and asking him, you know, what he uses this for. And he says, I only burn leaves in this, but it's a hint 
to the fact that he burns the bodies in here. And um our, our, when he's like my fertilizer. <laughs> right. Um did did you get the sense that um there were a certain number of murder like I wasn't keeping track because I wasn't paying close attention to what the um the cop was saying but the the murder of the woman on the train um was that supposed to be like the third or fourth like how many missing brides were there when I the think movie starts six. six right i think you said six but um the only guess i have the the bride on the train worked for him is that he says um six women have worked for you and they all end up dead and like honestly if it was six chicks that have turned up dead because or on their wedding night or thereabouts like I don't know, like, you don't shit where you eat, and this is why. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, you, you need to spread yourself out a little bit more. Right. If you don't want to get caught. That, it's just... Like, I was thinking, like, oh, if he was just killing women who buy his wedding dresses and then go get married... But like, don't actually work for him, right? And then go get married. Like it would seem like that would be harder to connect. But um, but, but know, at the murderer. but at the same time, like, how likely is it that every one of the women who models these wedding dresses for him ends up going and getting married? I guess it's, he said like what forty. What did he say? Four thousand people get married in Paris every day, or something like that, which is a ridiculous number. But, um, you know, I guess the idea is that all of these models, if they all worked for him, and he killed them all, and it was easier for him to figure out how to find them um, once they got married. But, you know, we, we get to the scene where. Um, you know, he's still talking to the inspector, but now he's outside and there's a photo shoot going on and, um, Alice is posing, but also Helen is posing and, um, and is this where he walks up the stairs and then she runs up and she's like, oh, I need to talk to you. Um, I'm going to get married and I'm going to need to quit my job. Right, and he's like, "Oh, we'll come back here later. I have a present for you, or whatever." And yeah, he asks. Like, he asks her to stay late. Yep. Yeah. Um. Well, and and so that and that leads to and that leads to a scene where, um, but before that happens, it, the inspector, he and the inspector talk to Helen for a second, but she comes in to say hello, and then goes back over and gets her pictures taken again. But then the next scene, um, the brunette comes and t- says all that stuff that you just said. And then he, um, he, let's see in my notes here. 
Um, we the boy from the train a- appears again um, after he, after he asks the girl to stay late. Um, we see the we see the boy the little boy again. Um, but then the next scene is basically her staying late and him basically, you know, bringing her into the room with all the mannequins and saying, hey, you know, I'm going to give you this dress. Uh, pick out every anyone you want. And then we go through this, you know, we go through the whole the dance, uh, as it were, where they yeah. start actually physically dancing. And then he kills her. Um, and we have some flashbacks and we have John, John. Um, and. Uh, that's like the first, or this is the second murder that we see him commit. Um, and ultimately, uh, he brings her to his greenhouse and throws her in the crematorium. And then there's that really cool shot of him standing outside watching this giant pipe, um, spurt the, uh, the, the, the ashes that are being burned up into the, into the sky for, this woman that he just killed. Um, although I don't know that that particular tower and that particular uh, exhaust pipe is the right size for the tiny little. Um, I consider- also don't know if you should have a furnace in a greenhouse. Like I would think that would just like destroy all the plants in there. But. I'm also not a botanist. Well, maybe so that's how he keeps really the, the hothouse hot. By leaving that on, like leaving the, leaving the incinerator on and it, uh, I, I guess, I don't know. I mean, this guy knows a lot about ascots, but I don't know if he knows a lot about gardening. I'm come out and say it. Yeah. I don't know if he does. I mean, it seems like he's got a nice little setup there in his hothouse. Um, but anyway, the next day, um, we have breakfast with Mildred. And here's where um, one of the things I wanted to, to say, which was, um, I'm trying to understand the toaster in the scene. I knew you were going to bring that up. As soon as you said that. As soon as you said that. There's a question I had. Why the fuck is there a toaster on this table a million miles away from the house? Right. But they bring all the other food out, but toast is something you have to make at the table. But how do they even make it work? Is there a is there an electrical outlet out there? Or is this so. something... They have an extension cord that goes all the way back to the house. Or is there some sort of toaster that works on like fossil fuels or something? You know, like maybe that's <laughs> that's why the toast got burnt. Like it's, it's like a charcoal, out. it's like a charcoal toaster or something. And then that's another thing. And I think it's it was there just for the transition of the smoke billowing and right. the burnt toast. <laughs> but then there was like this like weird thing that seems like something that should have been like played up on throughout the movie but the wife is um trying to scrape the burnt stuff off the toast and just all of a sudden he gets super pissed and he's like stop it you know i hate that (laughs) never brought up again just like crickets like uh, (laughs) like, 
you don't like draw attention to so many things that you never go back to. It's so weird. It was like a, wasn't it like a crash zoom on his face? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It like was like really like, uh, I don't know. I'm looking at it Confused. again now, and there's definitely an electrical cord coming out of the, the side of it. It must go somewhere. Anyway, um, so Mildred says, hey, I've got this friend, and her name is um, Gladys. And she's not feeling well, and she's going to go visit her. And so John takes her to the airport to see her off. And hey, is this where she does that thing where she smashes the grape and the little silver yes. tray, and like the shot is of her face in there? Like, Reflects it. To remember, right. yeah, because like there's whenever he goes to kill someone, they're reflected in the cleaver. And I'm right. trying to remember if every single person he's attacked had a reflection bit beforehand. I don't know if they all did. I could go back and check, but that one was definitely um, done, you know, intentionally where, she, you know, the, the, the whole crushing of the grape, I guess, is supposed to symbolize, you know, her, uh, her, the fact that she's got this power over him. Um, and then once you see the, the crushing, you know, the next thing you see is her reflection as she continues to talk in that scene. Yeah. Um, so it was an interesting kind of decision. I don't know that it was the best one, but it was an interesting one. Um, so now he's at the airport and all of a sudden Helen is there and she's like, yeah, you know, I know that, uh, you uh, oh and here you know so right after the right after they talk at the airport we have a day for night shot or maybe it's just really just a night shot of Paris with the Eiffel Tower so I guess that was one of the scenes that Lamberto directed um, and it doesn't last very long they're just driving down a street um, and then the next this scene is one of those awesome scenes where they're having one conversation. But it takes place over like seven different locations, right? Yeah. Well, it's it's also the scene where um, Helen asks, "What did you do to my sister?" And he said, uh, uh, "I raped her and killed her and I, chopped her up." I, <laughs> and she laughs at him. Oh, you're so funny! Yeah, uh-huh. I, was, I was so gonna bring that up. It's like the <laughs> like worst like pickup line ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I killed her, I raped her, and I buried her in my garden. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like, oh, and she's like, "Oh, you're so think? funny." Yeah, you silly man. So, is that really your sister? Would it matter? I don't know. You want to do something else? Maybe. That's weird. Fuck you. <laughs> you're funny. Like, worst conversation of all time. Like, Yes, and and it does like, and you're right. It does, it, it it continues from the table where they're having their drinks to where they're walking um, over the over the bridge. It's the same discussion, um, but you can tell at this point that John really likes this girl for some reason. Um, you're not too sure yet whether like or not. For some reason. She seems like a total piece of shit. Like, for <laughs> some reason, he's really into her. Well, like, 
his he's a he's very he's very stony when it comes to like his expressions and stuff and you can't really tell what he's really thinking and you know we find out later what you know helen's motives were but up until this point you still think that she's just legit and she's just interested in him for whatever reason and um but you don't know for sure Did you ever find out if her sister was one of the other victims I don't think we do. I don't think it matters, but I don't remember. But yeah, so you don't really know whether he still wants to kill her or whether he actually really likes her. Um, and and that you know that's an interesting thing that that whole idea is played out in a bunch of different movies that I, I off the top of my head I can't remember a, a specific example, but like you know the killer um, is killing all of these you know tarts tramps whatever you want to call them, and then he meets this one girl. And she's different than the others, you know. Um, and that's what's happening here. So um, John goes home. Um, he sits down. He watches TV. And I think they were showing uh, a Bava film on the TV. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you, do you know what it was? I think it's Black Sabbath. Because at one point they show the Boris Karloff head. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's I think that's what it was. But um, while he's down there having his scotch and watching TV, um, he realizes that um, that Mildred is home and he goes upstairs and she's like, yeah, I came home right away. Uh, You really think I was going to let you sit around here for a whole week without without me to do whatever you want? And uh, and it's kind of like, but he does whatever he wants anyway so what's the difference i don't understand but you know whatever i also don't understand like going to those elaborate lengths to just be able to go ha like oh you got him what happens now like i don't know like the whole thing just seemed weird she got on a plane flew to another country and then just got on another plane and came back. Just to right. show him that she wasn't going to let him go out with some girl, which he did anyway. <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> you win. Well, yeah, I mean, do you think there really was a Gladys, and do you think there really was a reason for her to leave, or did, was it was all a ploy? Well, like, a lot of things that we're discovering about this movie, I don't think anything actually matters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. true enough. It's just getting to the next scene. Oh, and believe me, once we get a little bit further down the line, nothing really matters anymore. And to be fair, I don't know if he actually ever gets to sip the scotch. No. I think of two scenes where he's about to have a drink of it, and then he puts it down because he sees something crazy. It's like the tea or the cigarette. It's (laughs) like the... But it's not a gag at all. It's just like something that you don't notice. But... Yeah. So she tells him that she's never going to leave him. He goes into the bathroom. He has like a little breakdown. And then he decides, I guess at that point, yes, you know what? I'm going to kill her. I can't take it anymore. Um, and at this point, he's not killing Mildred to help figure out his puzzle. Like, he's just killing her because, hey, like, I'm crazy. I already kill people. What's one more? And I want to get my wife out of the way. Um, 
But before he does that, he... Yeah, especially uh, if, if everyone thinks that she's out of town. Like, true. Like, who's the fool here? You know? Like, yeah, this would be the perfect time to do it. Although, when he does kill her, he's wearing the 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 wedding veil, and is he, doesn't he have, like, the lipstick on and shit? Yeah, very weird. And so he's maybe somehow it, able to not look like that five seconds later. <laughs> right. So maybe it is part of his psychosis that he wants to kill Mildred, or maybe it will help him. Um, but he tries to seduce her first, and then he goes away, and he comes back with the cleaver, and he kills her. And um, then the next thing that happens is this great scene where as soon as he's done with this finishing blow, which really isn't a finishing blow because she stays alive for a little bit longer, um, the door starts going crazy with the doorbell and pounding on the door, and she collapses on the staircase. He walks down the staircase and opens the door and lets the police officer and the fiancé of Alice, who's already been killed, into his house knowing full well that there's a body right up there, like, and as cool as a cucumber, like, yeah, just let him in, you know, um, I'm not worried about it. Like, I'm, and I'm thinking, wait, what if they just, what happens if they go up the steps? You know, they're going to find the if body. Look up. All they have to do is look up. Right. Yeah. But then the uh, other thing that was so funny about this is if they heard a woman screaming, why were they still just waiting at the door? Yeah, right. Like, I don't know. Well, but, I don't know. Is there is there is there such a thing as a search warrant in uh, in these particular times, or not necessarily? You know, I don't know. I think that's uh, probable cause. They hear a woman scream. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. So, um, he basically says, "Oh, you heard a woman scream," and he goes and turns on the TV, and he's like, "This is what I was watching." Um. So they're like, okay, well, you know, we, we don't have any probable cause. We're going to split. We leave. Um, and and then at that this, point. This is the stressful bit. This is the part of the movie that I always think about when I think of this movie. This is, this is the, was this the thing that you were saying? This is the part. No, 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 no. This is just like. <clears throat> It's almost like, you know, like the key under the door in Torso or um, ah, the him watching the murder happen inside the glass. Right. And um, for um, the crystal plumage, it's like the cops are sitting there talking to him and you see blood running down her hand on the steps. Yes. And it's going to drip. And you're like, oh, God, he's going to get caught right now. Yeah. Like, this is that scene that, like, I, oh, whenever, like, this movie comes up, that's the first thing that pops in my head. It just that's the scene up. you remember. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. The, the, the pivotal scene. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, so. Okay, well, so so John uh, takes Mildred uh, over to his um, hothouse and buries her. Um, and while he's burying her, the boy shows up. 
attachment. So we see the boy walking around in the hothouse, and then we see some scenes of John as an adult, you know, finishing the burying. Um, and he's, I, I, I have written down in my notes, I want to know who did it. Does he say that in, that, in this scene? I guess he says it in his head. I want to know who did it. Because like I'm right now, I'm looking at a scene where he's he's on the left side of the screen, filling in the dirt, and the boy is walking around on the right side, and it's this big wide-angle shot of uh, of the hothouse. And I'm I've, I've got the sound turned off, so I can't hear what's going on. But I don't know. I got yeah, I, I, put, I put the I put the uh, sound on just to hear it. He says it. Oh, there's a voiceover. It's the boy. It's the little boy who's saying, I saw mommy dead and I want to know who did. It. Oh, um, right, right, right. There's a flashback scene where the boy wakes up in his bed. And he goes and runs down and looks in the keyhole and sees his mother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's going, John, John, John. Okay. So next is my favorite thing of the whole movie, which is John with his amazing eyeliner um, cracks this raw egg and sips it, disgusting. sips it through the shell. And then we pan out and see the greatest outfit of all male no. Jalo outfits, which is... <laughs> It's got to be pajamas, right? Like, he's not, like, going out in public in that thing, is he? No, because, it's, yeah, right, it's top and bottom. He's in his pajamas. Oh, they're hideous. <laughs> like, I love horrible clothes, but this, like, is just a bridge too far. It's, like, it's really terrible. And he's got his collar up. Uh, he's, got his, he's got his one foot up. It's crazy, dude. It's, it's, it's a great scene. I love it. But... The other thing that happens in this scene, and it's where the, the movie starts to go south for me, is yeah. Mildred is there, but she's not there. And we have this thing that happens now in the movie where she's dead, but she's not dead. Uh, people can see her, but they can't see her. And who can see her? And it starts to drive me fucking crazy because... Well, right now, he can't see her, but everyone else can. But everyone else can. And he knows that she's dead. So, And we know yes. that she's dead. But look, I understand that, you know, when you're dealing with the supernatural or you're dealing with psychosis or you're, you know, you've got a movie that touches on both of these things. Is she a ghost? Is she a hallucination? Is it like a, is it some sort of ploy? Because really she never died and she's trying to, she's trying to blackmail him or something like that. Like all those things run through my mind. But they don't do it with any sort of consistency. Like, it just doesn't make any sense at all. And it's annoying for me. I, I don't like the idea that, you know, if, she's, if she really is dead, but she's still showing up, she's showing up because she's a figment of his hallucination. But if she's a figment of his hallucination, then why are other people seeing her and not well, him? No, she's she's a ghost because she's into spirituality and stuff. So she really is a ghost and people are seeing yeah. her, but she's not. Okay. Yeah. And that's, I don't like it. I, 
and maybe and maybe the, and maybe the only reason why I don't like it is because this movie shows up on all these lists of giallo films and when we start talking about the supernatural as being a legitimate thing in the movie it kind of it kind of uh, excludes the film from being a giallo at least well then there's a lot of people who are going to say that Argento's best films can't be considered giallo then well they can if you're talking about Suspiria well that's what I'm saying like Suspiria Inferno and what was the other one because, like, people argue that that's a giallo, right? Well, like, I mean, people who do that. there are. And there's there's an argument in that when you're talking about the word giallo and the connotations that it has in Italy, it basically just means a mystery. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to have the specific characteristics of um, a, a police procedural type crime thriller kind of thing where... Yeah everything makes sense and is wrapped up in reality at the end. Like it's just a mystery. And if you're going by that, then this film is a giallo by that loose definition. But I think as the years went on and people started scrutinizing these films and, 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 and being critical with them from an artistic standpoint, um, a film like this one that, you know, that relies on some of the fantastic stuff, that can't be explained in normal reality. Um, it, it 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 lies on the fringe of being considered a giallo. Yeah, and it uh, sucks because pretty well, not pretty soon, but in a little bit in the movie here, um, no one else could see her but him. She changes her curse, right? <clears throat> and um, if that's how the curse was the whole time. It would have been fine because then you could have said, oh, it's a psychosis. Right. And since the movie's from his point of view, yada, yada. That's um, how you wrap it up in reality. Sure. But yeah, th- this is the part of the movie where I start thinking of Spasmo. Oh, okay. Go to that. Because I completely forgot that there was this whole supernatural bit. Like, for some reason, I always thought the end of this movie was um, him killing his wife. Right. At least this movie in my head, without the ending of Spasmo, hooked onto it. Because, like, in in Spasmo, doesn't he have a locked room that nobody knows about that's full of mannequins that he, like, makes out with and shit? It sounds familiar. And I know we covered Spasmo, but I don't remember. To be honest, okay. Um, but uh, there's something to there's something to talk about when we're done with the scene by scene that I think will be very uh, enlightening okay. about the about the production of this movie. But um, that will give you like a little aha moment. Um, uh. But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, I think the idea here is that, and if you go, I mean, the, the one other point I wanted to make was, as we go through the rest of this movie, and John continues to try his best to get rid of Mildred, um, he digs her up, and then he cremates her, 
and then he carries her ashes around in a duffel bag, and then he throws the duffel bag in in the in the in the river, and then it comes back, and then he uh, spreads her ashes around, um, and she's just trying to rid himself of this hallucination, where maybe he can see her, maybe he can't, maybe she's coming back, maybe she isn't, um, but you know if like you said, if she was appearing to him and him only, and he continued to do these things to try to rid himself of this hallucination, it would make more sense. But the fact that she's appearing to people other than him, um, just totally rips the whole thing into a million pieces. Um, so, uh, we, we go to another scene where there's a fashion show, and the inspector shows up again and John goes and introduces. Well, I don't know if he introduces himself, but he goes and talks to this woman. Uh, her name is uh, Betsy and she has the little dog um, and she has like the amazing legs um, sitting in the chair. And there's a scene where he says something to her and then he says, why is your wife talking to herself? And she your says, what, you, what are you? Oh, uh, yeah, your, your mom. I'm sorry. Yeah. Why is your mom talking to herself? And he goes, what are you? What are you blind? She's talking to your wife. And um, so he just so again, he you know, it's this whole thing that's going on where he's not sure what's happening and what's real and what isn't real. Um, so I, I think I at that wanted point, to ask you, though, yeah. about what the cop says. The cop says he went home and watched that movie and there wasn't anyone screaming in the movie before they knocked on the door yeah (laughs) um so a in 1970 how the fuck did he do that and b like i mean they didn't have like home video and shit yeah either either it was a rebroadcast or because he's a cop he was able to go to the tv studio and say give me a copy of this movie I want to know how legit that is. Yeah. Anyone out there within the sound of my voice, if you <laughs> could verify what this shit cop said, I would like to know if it's accurate. Sure. Because, you know, you could obviously say that in the modern age that he was watching a tape and um, he a, rewound a streaming it. Download. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the whole the cop's whole premise was that he, the cop remembered the scene that John showed him on the TV when he got there, and For then like he half went, a second. Yeah, and then he went and watched it again, and then he you know took notes to the point where he could tell that up until the moment where John showed him that scene, there wasn't a scream, even though John said there was a scream. So this is way out of that cop's pay grade. Oh yeah. Yeah, he can't, he can't do anything. Like he's and he's orchestrating that whole thing. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um. So there's this weird scene at the at the fashion show, um, but um, eventually, uh, John is like, "Look, I can't take this anymore. Um, I'm going to go dig her up and burn her." So he he goes back and digs up Mildred and throws her in the crematorium. And puts her ashes in a bag. 
and then um, sits down and goes to have a drink of scotch um, with the bag next to her, next to him. And he talks to her as if she's still alive. And then they go to a club, the same club that he was with, with uh, Helen. And the, um, the waiter comes out and says, uh, what, what, what would your wife like to drink? And he's, you know, he, he's like, whatever. And, uh, and he comes back and he says, here's your whiskey and a, a sherry for the lady or something like that. Um, so we're still at this point in the movie, uh, going under the theory that everybody can see her except him. Um, so when he leaves the club, Oh, because he he he, he accosting because he, <laughs> he was accosting this woman, saying, "Hey, come back and have a threesome with me and my my wife." And uh, oh yeah, uh, so as he's walking home after getting thrown out of the club, he throws the duffel bag <clears throat> into the into the river. He gets home. The duffel bag is back again on top of the stairs. So then he goes out into this very fake looking rainstorm and throws the ashes out in the middle of this rainstorm into wherever he was throwing them. On this property, you know, well, yeah, as you they, do, when they have, to get rid of an evil spirit. They have so much property, too. So, yeah. um, so after that, he finally goes back to his little toy room. And he's in there, and he's looking at this, and he's looking at that, and there's all these little weird, you know, toys, wind-up toys, and this and this. Um, and... Um, Helen appears again and he says to her something about how he's one more. He only has one more step in order to find out the truth. And again, this goes back to the question that I threw out in the beginning, which is um, this guy seems to know somehow that every time he kills somebody, a little bit more of the flashback will be revealed to him. Which and I'm not, I wish he would have told us. Right. Tell us that in the beginning. Yeah. I mean, exactly. Like if you're going to do this voiceover where you introduce yourself as the psycho deranged killer, just tell us, you know, in your crazy psycho world, what your logic is. What are the rules? (laughs) All we want to know are what are the rules for this freaking movie? (laughs) Right. It would be great if we could follow it that way. Uh, so um, the next scene, we see the cops and they're rushing and they're outside in France and they're rushing to a scene. And then, and this wasn't obvious to me the first time I watched it, but um, the woman who has the dog, he goes to her house because she's going to be the next person that he's killing. And this is the person he's referencing when he tells Helen, I just have one more step in order to find out the truth. Um so he goes to this house and the way that it's um, appointed with this large table, uh, it looks like he's in his house. I don't know if he actually is there. Like this might be one of those things like in um, what movie was that where there was another killer For no reason and never brought up again. Oh, like in like either Strange Vice or uh, Case of the Scorpion's Tale, where there's a second killer. Yeah. 
because the cops like rush back over to his house and he's there and he's like what but like he's just walking around whereas the cops are like rushing like nuts and then that Helen's there and he but he said why did you lie to me I guess it was him I don't know I just well, yeah, I mean, weird idea that like it couldn't have been him because he was at his house. Well, the thing that they don't do is they show you the cops driving to the scene, but they don't show you uh, John going there. They don't show you John leaving the house or going anywhere or getting in a car or driving. They just show um, he lights his Zippo lighter and they show a close up of his watch. And he's standing in this dark uh, doorway where the like the light is just shining on his, the eyes of his face, and um, he he sees this table that's set for like twelve people, and there's a staircase that goes up and then and then it branches off in two directions, and then all of a sudden the woman lets the dog out and the dog comes over and starts growling at him, and the next thing that happens is the the cops like bust right in through the window or the door or or something, which is another reason why I said that because the earlier in the movie, the dog liked him and she thought that was really weird because the dog doesn't like anybody. Right. So I'm like, that's a good point. Does that mean that wasn't him or was it a different him, like a different personality and the dog could tell the difference. Hmm. Um, oh boy! No, like we're really trying to make this movie make sense. Yeah, and there's no we're, we're, no point. We're trying, people. <laughs> you know, uh, ladies and gentlemen of the podcast listeners, um, I, by now you've probably predicted that um, three quarters to uh, to um, between two thirds and three quarters of the way through our scene by scene, we come to this thing that happens every single time, which is we both say to ourselves. We're making, trying to make sense out of this when we don't need to. And we never yeah. stop trying to make sense out of it. Like, you think by now we would have learned. We're the hey. amateur detectives, dude. <laughs> <laughs> We're trying to so like, clear our good name. So what's, what's really weird is the cops bust in. I'm watching it again. The cops bust in. Um, and... The very next scene, I have to rewind it here. The cops, the, the, it's nighttime. He's in the shadows. The cops bust through these, these giant, you know, swinging doors. Um, the next, the very next scene is a close up of the sun and a lens flare shining through the trees. And then we're looking at the train again. So you have a very good point. Like, was he even ever really there? Um, but now it's daytime, I guess. Is it daytime? Because they showed the sun. I don't know. All right. Anyway, so the train crashes and he's back in his house and he's all sweaty. And of course, you know, the, the, um, the inspector's going to, yeah, he's going to, the, the inspector's going to mention that thing again about how, you know, it's really cold. I don't know why you're so sweaty. Um, it's all the coke in the beginning of the movie. <laughs> right, that's, that's why I'm also so fucking paranoid. Get the fuck <laughs> out of my house. <laughs> but then the chick shows up and she's like, yeah, we're going to bone. Like, beat it. And he's yeah. Like, yeah. 
Well, nobody knows. Nobody's talking about the fact that his wife is missing, and the inspector's there. And then all of a sudden, Helen comes down. She's wearing his robe, and she's like, "Yeah, I'm here, and we're gonna get on. Get it on. Is there anything wrong with that?" And he's like, "No, you know, uh, I envy you, and and let me tell you that I envy you, and then let me tell you once more time that I envy you, and then as I'm walking out the door, I'm gonna tell you, you know what? Um, I envy you." And then he leaves. Um, it's so cool that you murder people. <laughs> oh, and you get to bang models. That is also cool. Yeah, I really envy you about the bridal models. So now I think that at this point, John is kind of pissed because he was supposed to be killing this other woman so that the puzzle piece would be in place and he would understand what he was trying to understand, but it didn't happen. He was thwarted. So now he's dancing with Helen. She's wearing a bridal thing. She's with all the mannequins. All the candles are lit, and all of a sudden, um, the music changes, and she decides that she doesn't like the way that he looks, and he comes after her with the the cleaver, and then we see the final version of the flashback where um, he realizes that it was him that killed his own mother. He looks through the keyhole. He is is seeing his uh, his mother with some man. Um, there is a veil, um, a wedding veil on the uh, on the on the four poster bed post. So maybe the idea is that you know she was if if that's her bridal thing and she was just married and that's her son, then maybe she got married a second time and that's why he killed her. He didn't There's like the body next to her. So did he kill the man too? Cause he doesn't seem at all upset about that. I think so. I think he killed the man too. Whoever that so man. That's was. another man besides the first man. All right. So it wasn't a Lamberto Bava featurette after all. Um, so uh, he tries to kill Helen, but the cops come in. She opens the door and lets them in. And then she has a nervous breakdown and cries. It's and so funny. The cops like, thank you so much for putting yourself in such great danger. And then she's <laughs> like, ah! like, you're going to be scarred for the rest of your life. You're a champ. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe some of that's lost in the translation, but... Um, so as he's getting so hauled, was she, was she there specifically for the purpose to catch him trying to murder herself? That's what I got out of it. I mean, okay. the, 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 there's very little explanation at the end. And, and again, um, when I was watching this, because I don't remember what happened the first couple of times I watched it. I could have sworn that this was going to resolve itself into a non-supernatural, non-unexplained uh, ending. Like, um, that his wife really wasn't dead, and she and um, Helen came up with some sort of scheme, and he never really was a murderer in the first place. Um, but that's not what happened. I just thought that it was going to resolve itself a little bit more practically. But what ends up happening is that um, they haul him away. Apparently, Helen was brought in by the cops as a way to try and frame him. 
And at the very last second, after they put uh, John in the car, um, they bring this duffel bag. And I don't think it's his duffel For bag. I think some it's somebody else's. Fucking reason. Exactly. I, I think it belongs to one of the cops. It just happens to look like the duffel bag that had the ashes in it. And then the last scene is he sees the duffel bag and he has one more hallucination with um, Mildred. And Mildred says, I'm going to be with you forever in prison and when we go to hell together. And why, I, why would Mildred be going to hell? We don't really know. But um, then he starts freaking out. He doesn't, you know, this whole time, the idea that he's being carted away and going to prison, he doesn't care. He's totally cool cucumber. Now, here's the thing that drives me crazy. <clears throat> he found out that then he was trying to find out by almost killing Helen. Right. So if the cops never showed up again, there's a good possibility he would never kill anyone ever again. Okay? I, right. That's one. Two, once they finally catch this crazy murderer, he says, hey, do you mind if I go up and shower and shave and put some nice clothes on to be carted off then? And they're like, sure, buddy. We'll all have like a big party in the shower room. And I, I won't try to kill myself with this straight razor. Like, It'll be kosher. <laughs> and, like, they just let him go do it. I mean, of course, this is all off camera. But right. he looks like a million bucks. He does. Like, walking into the paddy wagon. And he's happy. He's like, fucking hell. I'm so because tired looked- of these damn bridezillas. Because <laughs> he looks good now. Yeah. Well, um, I guess Alan's the other... going to need therapy. The other thing that I'm, uh, I wanted to say with your first point was um, we don't really know whether, you know, the fact that he's killing these women is simply because he's crazy or because this is the price that he has to pay in order to find out the truth. And like you said, once he finds out the truth, he doesn't have to kill anybody anymore. and He's retired. but He's like, oh, yeah, that's what happened. Right. Okay. That's a very big shallow bit. Yeah. Like, I remember now. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but we'll never good, know. Good, good stuff. <laughs> so, basically, I was excited to watch this movie again because I remembered when I watched it the first time, I rather enjoyed it. Right. This time through, however, I enjoyed Baba's work. Right. But I really did not like this story. Yeah. It was really just digging at me mad. Yeah. I agree. And and, uh, I came into this discussion with the exact same feeling. Um, The idea that... um, I couldn't take my eyes off the film because of how beautiful it looked. Um, but it just was infuriating because um, of the fact that, number one, it really moved slowly. Um, yeah. There and wasn't the scenes a... were only like four seconds long. Yeah. That's what's so weird. Like, the scenes are so short. 
the fact that this movie is so slow is yeah. bizarre. And I think yeah. it has to do with all the fucking flashbacks. Yeah, it could be. Well, and the other thing is that the, the, the pace of the movie, you don't notice how slow it is sometimes, or at least you're able to live with it because you're looking at all of the visual eye candy, you know, that Bava puts into the frame. Yeah. Um, and you're not, you're not really that pissed about it. It's almost like you're watching, you know, an art piece that doesn't need explanation, but yeah, it moves. It seems like it moves slow. Um, and in addition to it seeming like it moves slow, you also have like these plot, uh, devices that don't really, they're not really consistent. Um, and they're just infuriating. Um, and we, we, you know, we, we've done, we've talked about most of them already ad nauseum. So, um, but the one thing that I wanted to bring up that I read on Wikipedia about this movie was, uh, and let me, let me bring it up again. It's probably easier if I just read it. Okay. Simply because <clears throat> while, you, I, while you're doing that, I just want to say real quick before I forget that the music in this movie, I like the music that's a part of the score. Yeah. But I don't like the music that is the music that is the music that the characters hear. Yeah. What's that called again? The diegetic music. I really don't like that. Like I the didn't... music that they listen to is shit, but the score I didn't notice itself it. is really cool. Yeah, the the music to me was kind of unmemorable in general. It you know how you know how that theme for Blood and Black Lace is just so amazing and you'll always bum, 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 bum. Well, that's eyeball. Oh, wait, that's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the same thing. Like eyeballs, the same thing. That that like that kind of bossa nova with the trumpet playing. Yeah. yeah. Love it. Um, but this was kind of very unremarkable as far as I was concerned. Um, yeah. But anyway, so the actor's name is Laura Betty, the the woman who played Mildred, and according to the, the production notes on Wikipedia, um, Bava wanted to work with her, but the guy who wrote the script for Hatchet for the Honeymoon didn't have a part for her, so Bava added her into the story. She wasn't st- the whole the whole story of Mildred Harrington and the ghost and all that shit wasn't supposed to be part of the movie originally. It wasn't in the script. It was added later because Bava wanted to work with this woman. And it says here, uh, having been promised that she would be the female lead and having met the producer's requirements that she lose 25 pounds before filming, Dagmar Lassander was incensed when she saw that the revised script sidelined her character in favor of Mildred. This, along with the fact that she was the lover of the guy who wrote the script at the time, and also there was a language barrier because she only spoke German, led to her having antagonistic relationships with Bava and Betty on the set. She later successfully sued the, the screenwriter 
for failing in his promise to make her the film's top billed actress. Uh, and it well, says, first at off, le- that's not a screenwriter's job. No, well, of a course, screenwriter not. doesn't get to make someone top billed or not. No, of course not. But I mean, when you're Dagmar Lysander and it's 1970, you don't know that or care. So, whatever. But wait, she that was who's Dagmar? What the character? Was girl who plays Helen is Dagmar. Oh, okay, so Helen sued. Yes. Oh, okay. Okay. She sued sense. because she was supposed to be the top billed actress, and then all of a sudden Bava started working with this other woman, um, and they they added her to the script, and she turned out to be more have a have a bigger role in the movie. And then it says in at least one scene, John introduces Helen to Inspector Russell. Um, you know the scene where they're outside, and the inspector is talking to yeah. John and then um, Helen comes over. Apparently that scene was put in just so Dagmar would have more screen time and it wasn't part of the script at all. You can um, totally tell because she just like, she's there and then she's not right. Yeah, exactly. Um, oh my God. That this movie is so much better now. Yeah. Because she wasn't supposed to be there. Like the whole, the whole Mildred Harrington wife, weird ghost thing wasn't supposed to be part of the movie at all. They were going to make a, a bigger deal that he was this maniac uh, hatchet killer. And she was the kind of amateur detective slash um, damsel in distress undercover. Yeah. And it probably would have made the movie a lot better. <laughs> well, I wonder if the chick who played Mildred is into all the black arts and stuff like that, because she's basically the same character in Bay of Blood. Right. Right. And they, they, they kind of typecast her a little bit, I guess on this. Well, I don't know if they typecasted her. She just said, Hey, look, this is the kind of stuff I like to do. This is what I'm into. Right. How about I play a ghost? That would be really cool. Right. You know, (laughs) since we're sleeping together, like making a ghost. (laughs) <laughs> like, did the guy write Bay of Blood who wrote this? No. Okay. Oh, I don't think so. I think Bava wrote Bay of Blood. Well, but I'm not, I, writing I, Bay of Blood is like a loose term. <laughs> right, and exactly. Once we get to that, like, I hope we don't have the same thing. Because I remember the first <laughs> time I saw Bay of Blood, I was like, what the fuck is this shit? None of it makes any sense. But then, like, I fell in love with it because of the score. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> Well, according to this, um, they ran out of money um, because they were filming in Barcelona and in Rome. And this, the guy who played um, the guy who played uh, John Harrington, Stephen Forsyth, uh, had worked for like two weeks without getting paid, and so he stopped. He refused to film anymore until there was more money, um, and. Let's see. He accompanied the crew to Paris, but refused to take part in the shoot until he was paid. As such, he was replaced by a body double for the Paris exteriors, which were shot at a distance to hide his physical differences. But I don't remember him being in the exteriors in Paris. Neither do I. Virtually, oh, oh, it says virtually none of the Paris sequences were used in the completed film. Oh, okay. So, 
With the budget spent, filming was halted, and Baba accepted an invitation from Dick Randall to direct four times that night. Uh, as that film neared completion, he showed Hatchet for the Honeymoon script to the four times that night producer, Alfred Leone, in hopes that he would rescue the film, but was unimpressed with the script. However, in the interim, Kanyo, the guy who was the screenplay guy, secured funds needed to finally complete the film, and Hatchet for the Honeymoon uh, filming uh, ended at the end of October of 1969. Um, and then they released it uh, June of 1970 in Spain and Italy. Um, sorry, in Italy in June, in Spain in September, and in the UK in 1973, and in the United States in 1974. Um, all of these countries, in, except Spain, received limited release with very little marketing support. So um, I think a lot of people like this movie primarily, not primarily, but partly because it's one of like Baba's lesser known films. And if you're not watching it with, with the scrutiny of, you know, trying to dissect the plot, I think that, uh, you know, it's an interesting film to watch for all the things that you had said earlier, which was, you know, Baba experimenting with the camera as much as he possibly could. So, um, I, 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 I think that's the only reason why this film has gotten so much credibility over the years with people who are interested in giallo because i don't think it's that good of a movie um well it's sandwiched it's like it i mean it, to me it's right in between five dolls and bay of blood and right i really enjoy both of those so right. this one is just like it's kind of like I don't know, like four flies being between bird and deep red. Right. I, mean, I know okay. cat and nine tails is in there too, but sure. Um, and you like four flies a lot better. So that doesn't really work for you, but it's like the same thing for me. No, I understand. You know? what you're like, I like, it's almost like a trilogy of, um, I don't know. Like, slashing fucking movies while Bob was going, wow, these new cameras are a lot lighter than the ones I made blood and black lace with. <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah, no, I under, I understand the comparison. If I were to take all of the, the films that, that Argento did um, in that period, Four Flies is my least favorite um, out of all of those. But yeah, that's yeah, yeah. partly because Bird and Deep Red are so great, and Cat of Nine Tails is one of my favorites, even though it's not the greatest Jalo ever made. It's probably the most fun, one of the most fun Jolly um, that I've seen. It's just a lot of fun to watch that one. So, so yeah, that was Hatchet for the Honeymoon, and uh, I think we've exhausted talking about it do you have anything else you wanted to throw in there or are you good um no i'm good like um i just yeah i feel a little unfulfilled 
I, I yeah, I, I'm with I, you. I I was hoping that I was gonna enjoy this a lot more. Um, but what I really want, and it's just one of those things where no one ever did it because no one ever first saw the internet. But if anyone has like a copy of the script that was the original script without Mildred in it, oh, I I would fucking it absolutely like love to read that like i would stab someone with a fork in the <laughs> like i oh like the fact that that's a thing that she pulled that shit like yeah oh my god well i don't like, think that anybody i don't think that it was the woman i think the woman who according to the notes that i read the woman contacted baba because she had just won some Italian actress award and said, okay, now that I've achieved everything I want to achieve in, in quote-unquote legitimate film, I want to work with Bava because I really like what he does. And Bava wanted to work with her, and I think it was, it was him. It was Bava who decided to, like, fuck everything up with the script to, put, to include her in there. she was sleeping with the screenwriter. No, no, that, the was the, that was the other one. Oh, so the chick with the red hair sued the guy she was sleeping with for not getting top billing in a movie that he had no control over. Right. But at the same time, the director wanted to work with the woman who played Mildred so badly that he wrote her into the script. And that made the Helen character pissed, uh, pissed her off. Oh, yeah, that would do it. Because <laughs> seriously, and I'm sure it was the same then, but a lot of actors and actresses, if you tell them they're going to get top billing, they'll work for a lot less so they can have like a starring role. Okay. And yeah. so they can tell people. So she probably worked for a lot less thinking she was going to be the lead. And then um, Grandma Simpson was like, no. I'm the lead. I won that <laughs> award. Um, oh wow, good stuff. Yeah, that's that's probably my favorite part of this whole thing. Like all of the shit that went on behind the scenes trying to get this movie made, um, and all of the all of the weird, um, you know, bad blood and 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 hurt feelings and whatnot that was going on. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, I'm I, I agree with you. It's a little underwhelming unfulfilling disappointing whatever word you want to use because you know um this is a bava film and you know when i first sat down to watch this i'm like okay this is great um i'm in the mood for a good a well photographed you know bava film but i forgot like that the film really doesn't do much for me in in, in terms of its story you know so Oh, well. But anyway, uh, that brings us to the end of that discussion, and it brings us to the next topic, which is uh, we got lots more Jolly to watch here. Yeah, what's um, next? So now I have 
two more films in 1970 that are probably worth a look. Uh, both of them are Italian with English subs. Um, so we can decide to do one or both or neither, depending on how we feel about watching, you know, Italian with English subs. Um, the first yeah. one is the first one is called Your Hands on My Body. Uh, and the other one is called, um, hang on. The other one is called Your Sweet Body to Kill. Uh, <laughs> both get points for animal in the title. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> both get uh, points for the word yeah. sweet. No, okay. Uh, no, but uh, which one is was more highly recommended? Neither one, really. In fact, that might be a fantastic poll question um, for our group. Let's have them pick which okay, one of those yeah. two we should do next. Um, yeah. yeah. So we'll leave it up to that group, which basically means that I need to get this <laughs> podcast edited and uh, put out soon so that um, we have an answer on that you poll. You can still put the poll up. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> Thank you for injecting that little sliver of common sense into my world right now, because you've been watching too much Hatchet for the Honeymoon. You dude, I'm just I'm rationally. I have such fucking tunnel vision with my life right now. It's so funny. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> we have two left, and let's let's. Uh, we'll, I'll post it up to the uh, to the Facebook page uh, in a, in a day or so, and then we can get some uh, we can get some feedback. But. Um, but yes, anyway, for those of you out there listening, if you've made it this far, thank you. We've been talking for a little over two and a half hours, um, yeah. and we appreciate you listening to us. Um, we appreciate all of the feedback we get on the Facebook page. If you want to send us an email, it's jalochowchow at gmail.com. The Jalo Chow Chow Volume 2 group on Facebook Um if you go to our podcast, there's a show notes uh, link. It's a Google Doc. Uh, it has links to those things in there. Get in touch with us in one way or another. And keep an eye out for uh, the Jalo Chow Chow TikTok account, which I yeah. will try to set up soon and, and uh, hopefully uh, get, some, get, get some hits on that before we get banned for copyright problems. Um, but that's all I have to say, and um, thanks, everybody, for listening, and thanks, Matt, for, uh, w once again, a great discussion, as always. And why don't you give us the old sign-out? All right, so until next time, everybody, ciao-ciao. Ciao-ciao.